Data Stories number 34. Hey, Enrico, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. And you? That's good. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I like that you are starting the show from time to time. Yeah. It relieves some your, stress your from your my Italian side. Accent, I need to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should try to fake it. Yeah, uh, I'll get a Romanian accent. Yeah, yeah. I can try with German. I spent some time <laughs> with you should be able. <laughs> So what's up, Enrico? Any news? Good. Good, 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 good. Lots of work. I've, I'm, I've, I'm teaching, and my course is going well. I uh, lots of excitement coming from the class. You might have seen my um, diaries. I've been writing a diary about what I'm teaching in class. Yeah, your blog posts are really good. Yeah, recommended reading. <laughs> yeah, and I think what is fun is that I'm really trying to to capture what the kind of feedback that I get in class. And the things that make me think much deeper about visualization, these strange things that we, we do. And uh, so it's fun. And uh, on the research side, I'm working on a couple of papers. I'm really excited about the research that we are doing. And um, hopefully I will be able to show some stuff uh, soon to the public. Yep. These deadlines are coming up? This deadline is coming up and my students are working hard on a couple of ideas we have. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. And you? Yeah, good. Anything Lots of new? Work. Yeah, I just came back from a really nice conference in the Netherlands, IC14. So it's an infographics conference or information design conference. And they had me over and Nicholas Felton and Stephanie Posavec and oh. a few other oh. really good speakers. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Did you hang around? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. John Grimbait was there as well. He's like an infographics legend. And he spoke at every single of these conferences, and this time he decided to disguise himself as as a different guy and made up a name <laughs> and <laughs> had a wig and so on. So it was quite a travesty. Cool, it was cool. it was nice. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, Nicholas Felton has a nice new report coming up, so he showed us a few, uh huh, uh huh, a little preview and also a bit on the reporter app and so on. And yes, the, the, the new app, right? I, I downloaded yeah. the app, but I didn't, didn't start using it yet. Yeah, no, it's, it's really pretty slick and works quite well. So maybe we should have him on my time. Yes, sometime soon. We have such a long list right now. <laughs> we can see. <laughs> yeah, and other than that, we now have help with the audio editing, which is awesome because it's quite... <laughs> Quite, quite a drag for me. And yeah. so the last episode, number 33, if you heard that one, it was edited by Fabricio Tavares. Thanks, Fabricio. Thanks, Fabricio. Fantastic and job. And we have two or maybe even three audio editors helping us out. So. It's great to have some help from, from you guys. <laughs> Fantastic. And it's great to know that this this help comes from the community from the listeners right that's right. that's, that's and awesome if you're listening and you think you can do that it's really not terribly hard kind of fun <laughs> to listen to the uh to the episode yeah it's just it takes a while that's that's clear but it's also we're gonna have um, our mean drop us a line we're happy about anybody who helps yeah or if you want to help us with something else let us know that's true. and any kind of help or, or is send welcome. Us Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <Or> food. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. <laughs> so, shall we? Shall we? Introduce yeah. our guest? Yeah. Another big guest today. Go ahead. 
So today we have Simon Rogers from Twitter. Hey, Simon. Hi, Hi Simon. guys. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Yeah, great. The sun is shining here and it's nice and warm. Oh, don't nice. tell me. Come on, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just it's been terrible for me here. Yeah. yeah. So finally, we have another nice British accent on the show. That was the plan. Yeah. <laughs> that was the plan. And uh, now I know why I was invited. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But you have a big competitor. Andy Kirk has been here for, I don't know, many times already. Three or Three four times. Three times or so, maybe four, yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll start to sound alike after a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Simon, you want to introduce yourself? That's the way we do it here. Okay. Just for the few people out there who don't know who you are. I think for the lots of people who don't know. So, um, <laughs> I work at Twitter in San Francisco. I'm data editor here. And uh, before I was here, I worked for The Guardian in London, where I set up the data blog. And I've got some books out, and I kind of write about data journalism on my blog as well. Great. So, um, Simon, when, when did you start your career at Guardian? Has it been a very God, you know, it was, it was years and years ago. I started there in 98, and I was the launch editor of the Guardian News website. Oh, wow. So that was my wow. first job, and that was when nobody wanted to work online because everybody thought it was a bit of a dead end. So that was my job. <laughs> Go away, right? And then, um, then I went to the paper, and um, my first day on the paper was September the 10th, um, 2001. So uh, obviously the oh, next day, easy. the world changed forever. And, um, and after that, I guess I found myself working increasingly with graphics and visuals because they needed somebody to do it. Nobody really wanted to. And I was thinking, well, these are proper pieces of editorial. They might be visual or they might be graphical, but they're as much editorial as a thousand-word article, and probably more people will look at them. So I became the person that kind of the news editor who worked with the graphics team and helped them tell stories visually um, without being a designer. I've never had any design training, which kind of shows sometimes, but, you know. So how did this happen? You all in a sudden realized that... that Showing stories through data was was great way to to build new pieces, or it was more a progressive kind of thing. Well, I guess I found that I was good at collecting that information and good at, at trying to simplify the story down so that it would make sense to somebody who's working with it visually. Because what used to happen, um, certainly at the Guardian, and, and it's kind of very common, more common perhaps in the UK than the US, is that you know the graphic designers would be given a task to do. And uh, they wouldn't be given any information. And, and these guys who should be spending their time kind of designing and making something look amazing uh, were spending time trying to find out what the latest situation was in Afghanistan or whatever. So I would be the person who would do that and try and, you know, boil it down and think, what are the key points here? What are the important things? And at the same time, the, the graphic designers would, would try and mitigate my demands to have lots of explosions and flashes and, and kind of crash stuff all over the graphics. And eventually we kind of come to this this arrangement and at the time it kind of coincided with a lot of a lot of things that we had editors who were very keen to have more big visual displays um you know sensor spreads and so on which were entirely kind of graphical visual based and um it coincided with the fact that people were increasingly looking at data as ways to get into journalism as ways to tell stories so all these things kind of came together and i found myself suddenly with lots of data sets and thinking well we should start publishing some of these which is really how the the data blog came about. 
Mm-hmm. But you started actually like as a, a, a journalist yeah. slash designer on the paper. Yeah. As a journalist, it was no, there was no designing from my end really at all. I was, you know, I had been trained mm-hmm. that way. It was just, just lots of background editing and news editing and working on the desk and having to do things super quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, five mm-hmm. impossible things before breakfast really is what it's like when you work on a news desk. And that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of how it works. You know, you have a million impossible things to do. And, and interestingly, you know, that's something that I think is, is one of the, the best skills you learn as a journalist is having to not get bazed by time and having, mm-hmm. um, you know, small amounts of time to do big, difficult things and just getting on with it and trying not to panic and, you know, getting your head down and making it happen. Sure. And did you also work with David McKendless in the beginnings, right? Yeah, so basically when I started the data blog, we were looking around for people to feature. And one of the things we realized is that when you ask people to visualize the, da- the data that you've just published, people do come back and do that. And we had so many people suddenly started kind of sending us visualizations or things they'd done. And David was one of them. So um, we suddenly thought that he's really good. And there, it wasn't necessarily, you know, there are, other designers out there who, you know, probably more classically trained designers. But what David was really good at was showing things, telling stories in a way that people would understand, combining interesting data together and that makes it kind of a bigger thing. So the parts are, are maybe quite small, but the whole is something interesting. I think that's David's real strength, is, is telling stories that people actually care about, you know, and, and give monkeys about. And that is, I think that's a kind of a key, a key skill of data journalism. It's not necessarily about showing off or showing how clever you are, but about taking data that actually means something and telling it to people in a way they can understand. Yeah, yeah. He, he has a great intuition, like how yeah. to find like a nice angle on a topic or yeah, the, the few facts that people will be really interested in. Yeah, and his background is a written journalist as well, isn't it? So I think that's really interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's his background as a storyteller, and that's kind of what we're all doing is telling stories, I would say. Right. To some degree, <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything. I would say everything is a story. Just you know, even a tweet could be a story. You know? <laughs> yeah, no. The background is I just wrote a blog post like two weeks ago, bashing all the storytelling hype. Ah, there you go. It's a hot topic right now. All right, <laughs> exactly. bring it on. Bring it on, Maurice. I'm ready. I'm ready for you. <laughs> I don't. I don't want. At least yeah. not that early in the episode. Okay. <laughs> come back later. We have time. No, but that's interesting. And when did that like um, develop most traction? Like 2008, 2009? Well, we launched the Guardian data. Yeah, blog, we launched or, the data blog in. We on, launched data blog 2009. But the only reason it happened then was because we had the traction internally because it coincided with the launch of the open platform, which is the API. So actually, having that traction meant that we because before you. Talk to people. I talk to a senior editor and say, "I really think we should do this blog. We publish data." And I say, "Well, why would we do that? Who would, who on earth would be interested in that?" Mm-hmm. And you know, and now nobody would argue with that. You know, by the time right. I left, it was the yeah. biggest blog in the Guardian. You know, Nate Silver's launching their own five thirty years. You know, their own version of data blog launched today. You know, this is a, and it won't be the only one. There are two or three other organisations who are setting up their own kind of data-based. Um, blogs and publications now so now nobody would have that argument but back then i guess it was a bit unusual and mm-hmm. we were kind of finding our way and i also remember there were lots of discussions about as you say like who needs that or about the quality mm. or is this proper uh, journalism yeah. you know in air quotes and um there was also this discussion i remember with david mckendless on bbc where he was like 
bashed really badly by Neville Brody. And, you know, it was like this time when it really wasn't clear what the place for that is. I think I think that was such an interesting time. I don't want to kind of focus on David too much because it's not mm. fair on poor David. But actually, you know, there came a time when a lot of people who have been working in design for a while were kind of resentful of, of this guy's success because they would look at it and say, oh, it's not proper design. It just looked like this. It hasn't got that. And I would think, well, actually, yeah. if it tells a story in a way that millions of people understand, then surely that's yeah. a success. You know, it might be classic um, visualization. And, uh, you know, a lot of visualization people are incredibly dogmatic. Uh, you know, obviously, apart from you, Moritz. Um, but, you know, people are, are if, you're, if you're not doing things in a certain way it's like you know the thought police almost and i think people are willing to experiment right, right. and muck around yeah, with I that mean, and do yeah, different things they're, graphic, they're, they're the people that are really interested sort of cringe as well it's like oh you can't do that but overall i i absolutely respect his um ability to as you say for the storytelling and the finding an interesting angle aspect he's, he's great at that yeah sure yeah as you said he opened also i think or maybe also your work, open data visualization to, I think, whole new audiences, you know, that have not been involved before. I mean, to me, to me, that's the most interesting thing about the whole movement is how it didn't really come out of mainstream media at all. It came out mm-hmm. of, you know, groups like um, you know, the Open Knowledge Foundation or little kind of hacker groups, people who are just interested in the data and opening up public data. And that world, it seems to me, is all about kind of collaborative storytelling. It's about, you know, using the community to help you work better. And I, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd kind of differentiate that almost from now. You know, now data journalism is so evolved that there are different types. And it feels to me that there's, a, there's another type of data journalism, which is, is the kind of the new mainstream, which is much more about, about, look, we're going to do this work, fellas. You step back a bit. We'll show you how it's done. And uh, much less inclusive. Than, than I feel, you know, some of the strongest data journalism is, which is about including the community, involving them, getting them to show you how to do things better. You know, I've I've learned more from people uh, talking to me, uh, uh, complaining about things that I've done, or I think Maurice, you know, you might have done that in the past. So why are you using those colors? And that's yeah, that sort of right, stuff to right. me. That's so valuable because I've learned my work has become better because of that. And I think there's I a. I just remember Gregor yeah. and I, we were having this huge discussion with you on, on, on a color. But you know, we changed how to do it ah. properly. But in the end, you're right. It, it, we all were smarter in the end. Yeah, but yeah, do you remember when you tweeted that? I was really pissed off at first. I, had, I spent all this time <laughs> making this map, and, and you guys tweeting this, this uh, yeah, this color is terrible. And to me, now, when I look back on that, I think that's actually taught me so much about data visualization in one Twitter conversation. I think I think collaborative working is so much stronger, and I think that's what you'll find that maybe there are different types of data journalism, and a lot of the mainstream data journalism we're seeing now is about, um, you know, the kind of the, the the professionals taking over, and that's fine. I think there's definitely an audience for that, but I'm more interested in open data journalism, which is about you know uh, democratizing the data that's out there, making mm-hmm. it public, doing interesting things with that. That's much more interesting to me. It, I, I also found that interesting was that you, you didn't really pick up programming to a big depth or so, but you were always able to to come up with some solution to display the data in, in a smart way, like relying <laughs> on existing tools or just doing simple things, but do them in an interesting way. And I think that can be a model for, for many journalists who, of course, don't have like an science <laughs> or like much time to pick up. I, I'm not, to me, that's really interesting because basically 
I, I, whenever I try and sit down and consciously learn any coding, it just goes in one ear and out the other. It really does. I'm not very good at learning stuff like that. I've been trying to spend some time recently looking at kind of coding APIs and stuff. And to be honest, it's not until I have to use it that it, that it sinks in. So, for instance, at the moment um, here at Twitter, one of the things we're doing, maybe we're visualizing you know, a conversation around uh, a big issue like, you know, the Ukraine or, you know, Beyonce's album release or whatever. And there we might be using a tool like CartoDB, which is actually a free tool. And for me, that's because it's the right tool for the job. It allows me to make something in 10 minutes that um, I couldn't do otherwise. And that, so I've, now I've learned how to use I've learned how to get the best out of it. So, so before it was, you know, using fusion tables or whatever, or coding JSON around that. And actually, if you'd sat me down and give me a class on it, it really would not have sunk in. But actually having to do it around a specific event or a specific data point suddenly makes it um, uh, something I've got to learn because there's no other way to tell that story. So my, I guess, you know, there are, there are definitely there are people out there who are much better at coding than I am and putting that stuff together. My, my thing, I guess, is, you know, in the, I've got half an hour to do this. What's the best way to do it in that time? And that's how I'll think around it. And, you know, so what are the best recommendations? Or what are the tools you, you appreciate the most? You, you mentioned CardiDB. Are there any other tools you use a lot? Um, yeah, we use Data Wrapper. You may, mm-hmm. you may have heard of. So, so Data Wrapper, for those who don't use it, is this brilliant kind of open source basic charting tool. It allows you to make really simple interactive charts, and their maps are actually pretty good. So, um, yeah. I mean, uh, if I was talking a bit about what I do here, I guess so. What I'll do often is we, you know. We'll look at how to tell stories around the way that people talk on Twitter around events. So with the Olympics, say in Sochi, we were doing things like every day I put out a map of showing which countries were talking uh, most about about the games that day, and we we basically normalised it by the population of that country. And I used a data wrapper for those maps. It's really simple to use and uh, allows you to choose the colors and to customize it just enough that actually you've got a really easily embeddable map and you can make it in 10 minutes, which I appreciate that. And I appreciate how shareable it is because people can, can tweet that out and, and um, can share it and embed it on their websites too. So that really that's really good for us. So I used, uh, used DataRap a lot. Carter Dibby I think is really powerful and we're, we're kind of scratching the, um, the surface of that. So you know, it allows you to animate a map make an animated map in 15 minutes, which is amazingly good. And I can't think of anything else that allows you to do that without being a coder. Um, so, but then also, you know, a lot of data journalism, I think, is about working with people and, and, you know, finding friends to work with. So, you know, here there's a really, really good Visual Insights team, for instance, as um, people like Miguel Rios and um, Nicolas Belmonte, uh, who we work with very closely. And so something like the State of the Union, speak nico and i worked on something which i'm really proud of it's one of the things i'm proudest of actually since since i've done this kind of work and that is where we try to tie in the speech itself the state of the union speech to twitter activity because often a lot of twitter visualizations are very pretty but they don't help you tell the story and i really want to do something where you'd see how people reacted to bits of the speech and um it, and uh, the great thing about nico's work is he makes these kind of complicated things come true and and um and it looks beautiful which is is really important as well and that meant you could click on a bit of speech you could see exactly what was happening on twitter at that time or you could 
click at exactly the time. Exactly the, the time. Specific yeah, sentence was exactly, said, right? exactly, yeah, and that's, that's quite amazing. And I think yeah. that's that's the way I want to go. I'm really interested in that and trying to visualize things that actually tell you what was happening whilst that activity was going on on Twitter. I think that's such an interesting mm-hmm. area because people, you know, tweet in the way that they think. They they tweet instantly and and they get those opinions out there. So to be able to show that. To what I think yeah. is is really fascinating. Here's a million dollar startup idea. <laughs> I, I would like to have that. <laughs> I, I always do that. No, um, I'd like to have that for TV series, like when they're first aired. Yeah. But I watch them later. That I have, I can have a replay of you know of that feed, uh, commenting on what's going on. Well, wouldn't it be great if you had a tool like that? You could just annotate yeah. as well. But you need that annotation. I think it's that that makes it key. It's not enough for it to look beautiful. Because then it looks right. beautiful but confusing. And I think you need to be able to, to almost annotate it and say that this is when this happened or that is when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And the big challenge is, of course, to filter out the relevant, like only match only the tweets that actually refer to the thing you sure. want to capture. Well, that's, that's always the, the The fascinating thing about Twitter data is that, you know, it's a self-policed um, corpus of information. It's not something where we say, right, if you're going to tweet about uh, the Olympics, you must use this hashtag. Right. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. People use whatever they want to do, and that's what makes it so amazing and vibrant and alive. But it also, it's one of the challenges of analyzing the data is that you have to make your guess of where the conversation is. It's always about your best I mean, guess. I know you, hash, you can be an Hashtags and at replies have both been invented by the community. Exactly. The whole thing so is kind uh, of... These were never Twitter features until people just started to use yeah. it. And then Twitter had to react it like, say like, hold on. <laughs> and now, and now everybody, everybody uses hashtags and at symbols, right? So now it's become something yeah. invented by the community and now it's part of the world of, of um, social data. So how would you describe your role as, as I think your official job title is data editor, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So essentially... uh, What do you do like on a (laughs) day-to-day? So basically (laughs) it's about, yeah, I wasn't brought in for my coding experience, as as you can tell. Um, But certainly it was, I think it was, it was interesting to be in an organization. So the Guardian, I guess it was an organization where there were not that many people that understood data, but there were lots of storytellers. And here, in a way, it's not. It's, it's the other way around. There are lots of people who understand data, but it's about trying to to help tell those stories with that data and make it take it from being big and confusing to make it meaningful and simpler for people to understand. And um, you know, that's working. Like I said, working a lot with the Visual Insights team here to try and show that. Yes, making data available, making data points available around big events. You know, if you follow the the at Twitter data. Feed, you'll see a lot of the stuff we've been doing has really been about showing how people are talking about an event on Twitter and and you know trying to put it into perspective for people because a lot of these numbers are abstract and we we don't want them to be abstract anymore we want them to be understandable and um, and also you know trying to encourage what you know trying to encourage people to to do better work with that data and and to show kind of what can be done and showcase things that we like as well. So the great thing is, I mean, you know. As a, as a journalist, you know, working outside Twitter before, it changed the way that that I would understand news or that I would report events. And now, being inside, you can see that the information behind that change and how much part of the the news process Twitter is nowadays. And that's and it's fascinating to be able to kind of explore that data and and try and understand it a bit better. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm yeah after 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 I've been here. 
um, you know, nearly a year now. Just, I still feel like I'm scratching the surface of what's possible. So can you tell us a little bit more about how your team works? So I guess there are there are people who are more on the analytics side and and managing the data and people like you that are more creating the stories. So are you working all together in a in a in one team or how does We it are we are spread how do, all how do you come up with a new idea? I'm just curious sure. about it. Yeah, so we're spread all over the organization. So for instance, I work closely with the analytics team who are amazing here. Um, they're kind of quantum physicists and, and geniuses. So, for instance, we did a piece last week on what happens if you add a hashtag to a tweet or a photograph or, um, you know, those kind of hard features. What's what's the result in retweets? And it varies by which area people are in. So, you know, a journalist adding a photograph to retweet has a different effect to a, a athlete or a, you know, TV presenter. And um, that's working with the analytics team who did this amazing research into millions of um, of tweets from thousands of um, verified users. So you've got work like that where they're already all the time, the analysts team doing this incredible research to try and understand better how people use Twitter and how you can kind of get the most out of it. And then um, it might be there's a big event coming up like the Oscars, uh, say then I'd work with um, Nico uh, Belmonte on the Visual Insights team and trying to showcase some of that stuff. So with the Oscars, for instance, we did this visualization uh, photo grid of the most viral images um, of, of the Oscars as they were going on. So from, from noon till midnight, you know, what were the images around the Oscars that were being most shared? And then suddenly, of course, you have that enormous, that enormous um, image right in the middle uh, from Ellen, and that kind of changed everything. And it was really, selfie. yeah, the selfie. And that was really interesting. We weren't necessarily expecting, obviously we weren't expecting that at all. And then see that happen and see the effect on the data and the suddenly how it changes everything about the way this thing looks was, was really fascinating. And you know, we don't always do things live, but that was one of the examples where we might you know, try and do a live visualization because it's a live event for people here. It's also the first time I've ever watched the Oscars live in my life, not, not having lived in the right time zone before. <laughs> so that's something that, um, that's you know, a big memory for me. And then um, things like the State of the Union, speeches have said you know, where we're trying to tie in the speech itself to 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 the day. So often it'll be around events. I think you know this big events coming up. What can we do that will that will help you? What can we do that's shareable that you know uh, any newspaper or news organisation could take and put on its site? And that's for me that's really exciting. I've actually had you know work I've been involved in has been displayed on more outlets since I've been here than than in my entire career pretty much. Yeah, from kind of BuzzFeed to Wall Street Journal, which is so that's quite a kind of you know, it's gratifying uh, feeling. And then, obviously, things happen in the world. You know, there are events, uh, there are things where something happens and there's a big news story and, you know, what, and a lot of those news stories take place on Twitter. You know, they're, they're, they're people, like, you saw there was, a, there was a really interesting piece by a guy at um, Data Miner this week about the Harlem explosion and how you can actually use Twitter status to show people reacting to that live before it's picked up by any kind of mainstream news media. And that's a really interesting thing that I think I'd like to spend a bit more time investigating how how events influence Twitter immediately. It's such a fascinating kind of you know, it's real-time conversation. Stuff happens and you, you can see it happening as it, as it goes on. Sure. And is there a specific website where you publish all, all this work? So at the moment, the stuff spread all over the website. There's, um, so I say you follow Twitter data, you'll be able to pick up most of it, which is one word, Twitter data. 
And um, we're published on, uh, you know, apart from being published all over the place on kind of news websites and so on, there's the official Twitter blog and Twitter media. The media blog also has a kind of a data section on there. You'll find bits. So we're in many places and it should be pretty easy to find. Okay. I think there was also one overview page with all the public-facing um, visualizations. There is, yeah, lately. absolutely. There's um, and that's uh, at the moment that is uh, as a GitHub address. Actually, I'll just give it to you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's um, let me just. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's twitter.github.io/interactive. We'll put it into the blog post yeah, yeah. so people can. That's, that's got a really nice collection of all the kind of the public-facing mm -hmm. visualizations we've done so far. And there's some really interesting things on there which are done by these amazing designers downstairs. So there's one of the Philippines, which is one of my favorites, which Nico did, which showed people tweeting um, the words help and the Philippines. So it wasn't just this is about a conversation about this awful disaster. It was about people offering to help via Twitter, which I, kind of, I like that. It's kind of turning around what you might expect us to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's rather beautiful. He's this kind of you, know, you you might appreciate the edge bundling that goes on there, Maurice. But yeah, there's nothing nothing bad about nice edge bundling. Exactly, yeah. that's a whole term. Yeah, I, yeah. That's a whole term that I wish I hadn't heard of. But there you go. Now I know. <laughs> Very nice. And I, I have to think back. We did this project two years ago uh, about the Olympics yeah. and also tracking the Twitter conversation, and we got the question quite a bit. Or it was also what we wanted to investigate. It's like, how does the insights you get from analyzing what people say on Twitter, how is it different from mainstream media report on? Hmm. I mean, it's a huge question, but do you have a short answer? Oh, my God. Well, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think it depends what you're looking at. I know some people look at sentiment, um, which is not something that I've got into right, that's what we did yeah, yeah. and i think that's that's a tricky negative. thing to do programmatically mm -hmm. isn't it absolutely and it's still absolutely. a tricky thing to do programmatically and yeah. um you know the closest i got to i guess is before ironically before i came to Twitter, it's when i worked to the guardian we looked at the uh, riots and the yeah. team and this was actually academics it wasn't it was frida Viss and academics mm -hmm. um at manchester and frida's now at sheffield and she's just brilliant um you know and analyzing kind of social media data but they looked at the language around rumors on Twitter and um, you know how quickly they spread and how quickly the, the community came to kind of challenge those rumors when they were wrong as well. And to me, that that is a really fascinating way to use that data because it's based in facts. It's hand-coded so you know it's right. You're not relying on algorithms that you're not 100% sure of. And, I, and for me, that's a really great way to, to use that data. Yeah. And the second thing, obviously, as you mentioned with the Harlem explosion, is just mm. the pure speed. <laughs> it's it's like, the pure speed, and things are wrong yeah. often with speed. But if right. if you're a reporter and you just use something without checking it, that would be insane. So you know, it's a tip-off mechanism. It's amazing, and that's and so something like data mine is really good for that. I would, I would really recommend anybody look at that because it allows the way that it monitors explosions of information, not necessarily actual explosions, but explosions of, of kind of tweets and people talking about an event as it happens. That is really, really fascinating. And they've got some really good kind of geo um, geo referencing tools on there as well, which are, are brilliant and kind of estimate geography to like 90% accuracy, which is pretty impressive. Another question. One thing I noticed, um, you, you push out a lot of, let's say, very snackable yeah, info, information graphics like a little piece of information. Yeah, it fits into a tweet basically. I mean, that's that's obviously 
it makes sense also in your context. Do you think in general that's sort of the future for how to present information on the web to make these very small units and, and well I think I think it's interesting isn't push it? them out or is there is there a place for long form as well or mid-sized yeah. form or what, what, I mean what, what's your take on that? So I think there's a place for everything just as there's a place for kind of different types of data journalism. You know, there's also a place for different types of visualizing it. And you know, in the past, certainly when I was a news desk, news editors would always want something interactive. It's got to be interactive. And actually, nine times out of ten, you know, for people to share it, it doesn't have to be interactive. And if it is interactive, you're kind of writing off all those people who might be looking at, at it on mobile platforms or, mm -hmm. you know, old Blackberries or whatever uh, format it is. And so by just chucking something out which is simple and, um, you know, a lot of those things are designed by the design team here. They, they give us templates that we can use to just when we want to release a number. Like, so... Okay, that's you know Adrian Holovati, the godfather of data journalism, said you know um, that uh, you know just publishing a number can be a story in itself. It doesn't have to be a visual. It doesn't have to be a big interactive. And there's room for those things. And you know when you see these incredibly elegant things, such as you know Fernanda um, and Martin's Wind project last year, that's something incredibly beautiful, and elegant, and lovely. And there'll mm -hmm. always be room for those. People will always want to see those. But also sometimes you know just having a quick hit like that that's viral and gets shared around is a really powerful thing. I mean, there's the BuzzFeed effect, isn't it, on, on journalism that actually journalism now doesn't have to be, you know, um, huge long-form pieces. It can be these very kind of instant, quick things that tell you something interesting about the world. I don't think that makes us less informed. It makes us more informed with lots, of, uh, lots more information. Great stuff. How Uh, Enrico, you picked up that great article. I totally forgot about it. But, Which one? Um, it, it was from Simon. It was about punk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's one I loved. <laughs> I think you have a blog post that is called something like Data Journalism as Punk. It's the new punk, yeah. It's the new punk or something like that. I, I really like the title, but the content as well. So, <laughs> so I, I, mean, I, kind of, I, I kind of wrote, it, wrote that to provoke a reaction in a way and partly i guess it was a reaction against the kind of the over professionalization of data journalism i kind of felt was going on and i thought that mm -hmm. actually you know the great thing about it is that you know anyone can do it you don't need to be you don't need to be you know um moritz or or Nate Silver or, or me or to do to do data journalism you know anybody can do it because the tools are there just as you know like punk started with a few kids in garages playing playing guitars and that was and i love that stage data of when it's brand new and anybody was kind of just diving into tools and trying to create things and actually it's because of the power of the story the power of you know trying to tell a story properly is what makes it powerful and doing it quickly and instantly and Just have a go. And I like that a lot. And I, I hope that that persists. But just as you know, punk became mainstream, you know, data journalism will become mainstream too because that's inevitable. But I really hope that there will always be a room for kind of gifted amateurs out there. And, you know, we had a lot of conversation when we wrote that piece about, well, what if it's not very good? What if it's, what if it's crap? And actually, I don't, think, I don't think something can be crap. I don't think it can be not very good. I think it's about having a go. And nine times out of ten, maybe that stuff won't change the world and people look at us all look at that. It's a bit of a joke. <laughs> But actually, what if out of that comes something amazing, something incredible that nobody has seen before? You know, it's like life is made up of those kind of moments, isn't it? And I think that's really important to encourage those. So uh, yeah, I'm just curious nice to hear from you. Oh, sorry, Moritz. Go ahead. 
I'm just curious to hear from you after so many years of experience. I think what, what, what is interesting about data journalism is the fact that there are journalists who traditionally are not um, trained in, in statistics or mm. anything related to data. Or in a sudden, so as you said, I mean, data journalism as punk means that everyone now can do data journalism, right? And that's, I agree with you, that's on the one hand is fantastic, but on the other hand, it's so easy to, 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 to use data in a, in a, improperly, right? I mean, mm. it's, I'll there tell you what, so if, you, if you use, that, if you use it badly and you publish it, you yeah. will have a million people on your back in five minutes. <laughs> this is the great thing about it. It's not that, yeah. yeah, so Mark Twain said that a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And yeah, that's true. But, you know, the rise of Twitter and social media and everything means that the truth can catch up as well. And to me, that's So you mean that really it's basically self-regulating, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and so whenever we got something, you know, on Dataflow and got something wrong, I would have a million comments. And the great thing was about publishing this stuff is that you find that one guy, that one woman who knows something inside out, and say, oh, yeah, actually, I did that research. And I think you'll find that the, the, it's better to look at it this way. So, so it's much, I think it's, it's a very kind of democratic way of, of reporting. And I think that's a really important thing. I hope we don't lose that. Because I think and this is yeah. how you get new people coming up. This is how you get new stars of, of that world because it's accessible and easy to do. And it's not about maths. You know, I was terrible at maths at school. Really, really bad. Sure, sure. Um, sure. It's about the tools that you've got and treating information in a kind of sceptical way. I think that's really important. Sure. But I still think that there are, there are quite some big challenges there. I mean, there are all sorts of scientists who made things wrong with data. So sure. I guess that everyone can, can do very badly with data. In I, think, I think the more, the, the more data literate we are as, 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 as a profession, the less likely it is people are going to get away with stuff. I mean, I've seen in the past journalists being given data stories and just accepting them without questioning yeah. them in a way they would never do with any other source of information. You have a guy tells you a story in a pub, you would check it out properly. And there was a kind of, in the world of, of kind of disbelieving numbers when they're put in front of you, then that, that kind of disappears. And now I think what's happening is because people are more data, they'll be more questioning. And if they're not questioning, their audience will be. And it's, it's, that's why it's so important to involve the audience, to involve the community in what you're yeah. doing, because yeah. uh, then you're going to get things right. Yeah. So you see a journalist much more, let's say, like a moderator than, yeah. than actually a writer? You're a curator. You're curating information. That's how sure. you should be treating yourself. You shouldn't be... I, I don't think, anyway, you sh and, you know, everybody has different views on this, right? But you shouldn't just see yourself as the only expert that matters. It's not about, it's not about showing off. It shouldn't be about showing mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. But you make rather sure the experts sort of have their say in the process and that, that all sides are represented. It's, a, yeah. it's an interesting perspective, yeah. Being wrong is okay. Meantime, I, I, I think I'd, I'd rather have a load of rubbish out there and, the, and then that's where you, the way you get the pearls, yeah? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think one aspect of, an interesting aspect of data in general is that I have the feeling that people, I have an answer that people, when, when they see a story supported by data, they believe it more, right? Yeah, and for sure. I don't know, yeah. Oh, but that goes, back to, yeah, that goes back to Florence Nightingale or, you know, uh, William Playfair, doesn't it? You know, they're using, using numbers to make their case. And that's, that's absolutely right. I think there is still a kind of, the numbers must be true. Yeah. Acceptance yeah. out there. And that's where maybe you have a more 
literal audience, then you're going to have more more challenging of those opinions, I would say. So another thing that I wanted to ask you that is even somewhat related to what we are discussing, where in your experience, where is the limit in terms of complexity that that the, the audience can bear when you are publishing mm. a new visualization out? So and and how does it does this play a role in the way you create visualization? Because I think another interesting discussion is that sometimes there are things that you might actually depict better, but with something that is more complex, and then you mm. have to find the right trade-off between complexity and expressiveness, right? So did you I think ever have so, this problem in your work? It's so interesting because I had this discussion with um, with John Keith at WMYC, and we talk about how a lot of data journalism is actually very simple. It's like something got bigger or smaller. How has it changed over time? How does this thing compare to that thing? And actually, wouldn't it be interesting if we could find a way to use more sophisticated um, data analysis techniques that exist out there? You know, statisticians have been working on more complicated ways to tell stories for a while. The problem you've always got is that you have to sell that story to the news editor or to the public. So you've always got that balance of... I, my, my take on it was... I would do things that I thought other people could replicate to test what I'd done. If I, and if other people could replicate what I do, then that's, that's great because I know I'm more likely to be right. That, that's just, but that's just my take. You have people, you know, other much more sophisticated journalists who are writing now, you know, some of them really famous who are doing things that are kind of complicated models and telling those kind of stories. And that's fine too. I think there's room enough for all those types. But I, I suspect we're becoming more sophisticated but what I hope is we don't become so sophisticated that people end up saying, that model's so sophisticated, I don't understand it, so I can't test whether it's true or not, but it must be, because it's really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, think we have to, I think we have to watch out for that, for a world where that happens. No, yeah, it's and- tricky. It's really tricky. I think I often make the case that we have really complex issues to tackle and, and that we can also um, trust people to actually get into quite some complexity if they're really interested in the topic. So I think that's often underestimated. At the same time, I think we often also overestimate how how statistically and visually literate people actually yeah, are. for and, sure. And, yeah. So, so there was always really interesting do- dynamics of conversations, certainly when I was at the paper, and I assume a little bit now, where people would, um, I said the paper, the Guardian, you know, it's just in my head that it's the paper, you know. It's the paper. Yeah, it's the paper as far as I'm concerned. But, um, you know, where we would talk a lot about, you know, how simple stuff should be. I would want things, I I grew up in kind of Dorling Kindersley books, you know, how things work, cutaways, 3D cutaways and and so on. And, you know, when I first started doing this stuff, I was like, why can't we use a 3D pie chart? I said, well, actually, you know, it's crap and it distorts the data. (laughs) But, um, you know, because you want uh, want things that are accessible and easy for people to understand when you're visualizing. Uh, information sure. and there's always sure, the, sure. those kind of that dichotomy isn't there between you know designers who know what they're doing and you know amateurs like me who kind of you know, are kind of <laughs> working our way through it so you know, you know Mike Robinson uh, the Guardian when I was you know the head of graphic amazing designer and um, he uh, we would often kind of butt heads on this you know how to do things I would want the kind of the big explosions or you know 3D tank cutaways and so well actually you're that's just too much stuff it's too much stuff on that visualization it's too complex now for people to understand it's all about making things simpler and now I can really see the, the benefits of that at the time um, well yeah, at the time I, would have, I might have argued a bit about it yeah, and I think another related aspect, this is related to what you were saying at the beginning, that the visualization community is a, bit, a little bit too dogmatic. 
So that 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 was definitely true for myself. I have to say, right. and during the last few years, I think I I reconsidered many of the things that I thought it would, were true. And one thing that I that I realized is that so people who are working in visualization or who have been working in visualization for a for a very long time, they tend to fall in love for for very good design, right? But I think yeah. that that a good visualization is not necessarily only about the design of the visualization itself; is the data that is that is really really important, right? So I think that a, a great piece. Um, is a piece that actually has really great data and trends to show, regardless of the way you show it in the first place, right? Mm. And I think that sometimes this aspect is is a little bit under. It's not. I mean, it's not clear because we tend to judge visualization only in terms of what is the visual representation of this data. But sure. behind that, there is a very long and complex work of deciding what kind of data to, to collect hmm. in the first place, I, I would what say, I mean, elements of this data yeah. to select. And, and, and I guess a lot of failures as well. So even in my, in, my, in my own activity, sometimes we try to do something and we don't discover anything interesting there. So there is boring data out there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and coming up, yeah, absolutely. There's no boring data. What are you talking about? I, I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think you're right in a sense, but there's, I think, you know, when I, when I first asked the guy, one of the first news editors, so I want to ask one of the senior news editors there, you know, how do you choose what to do? Because if you're a news editor, you've got all this stuff coming at you and you're trying to balance it all out. How do you choose what makes a story and what doesn't? He said, well, you have to choose stuff that's interesting to you because if it's interesting to you, it will be interesting to somebody else. And that's been my kind of, rule really if i'm interested then there'll be somebody out there who'll be interested as well i think that's really that's really important and also i don't know i guess it's i think i think the data is is when it really comes together and the data and the image come together and that kind of really perfect marriage something that's timely so people care about Mm -hmm. it and then suddenly uh, suddenly they're interested and you know the story and everything kind of merges together at the right time and when you work with people really uh who are really talented that's that often happens and that's that's you know one of the most rewarding things about this area of work that you know there are some really clever smart you know creative people out there and you get to work with some of the best of them so yeah which uh which brings me neatly onto these kids books i've done because they're yeah they see how i seeked into that um so this is um some some where i did the data work on these like a year ago and um, there are two books out now, one on the animal kingdom and one on the human body, published by Candlewick in the US. And um, they are by, you know, illustrated by amazing designers. We've got Peter Grundy doing one of them. Peter Grundy has been uh, designing infographics since the 70s. And you look at his stuff now and it feels incredibly timely because his work was is so well designed. And Nicholas Blackman, um, who's based out of New York, did the, uh, the one on the, um, the animal kingdom. And they're, they're, they're infographics for kids, basically. So, it's, so my kids love them because they're obsessed with the truth. And they're obsessed with facts because they want, they, want, yeah. they want certainty in the world, right? You guys have kids, yeah. right? So they, they want certainty. They want to know. Yeah, too many. <laughs> they, want to, they, want, they, they think that things are either true or they're not true. They don't like shades of gray. And the great thing about facts and data is it gives them certainty in a, in a kind of a weird, uncertain world. And that, to me, that's really interesting. Why, you know, is this a way of dealing with kids? So, we, you know, we've done this now. And a friend of mine who works with um, kids with educational needs, special needs, um, as they call them in the UK, they, um, uh, they, they, she said this could be a great way to teach for them. Now, guys, I have to go. The meeting room's full. Yeah, I know, there are oh, people really? coming into oh. the meeting room. 
<laughs> so you have to run somewhere. Yeah, I have to get out. So I have to get out of this room. <laughs> no, yeah. No worries. It's been fantastic. And the books, they look great. I, I think I have to get them. I have two kids too. Oh, yeah, let me know what you think. You're, 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 you're going to critique them visually though, aren't you? I can, I can feel that coming. <laughs> as long as it's audience adequate, I'm all for <laughs> Guys, it's been... A, no, it's... I find it super interesting what, like, which types of diagrams are picked up by it. I think that's a whole, a whole another topic for for sure. It's infographic. Yeah, absolutely. Simon, it's been great having you on. That was fantastic. We need to continue the conversation. I'll Again, happily, I'll happily come back, guys. Surface. Yeah. All right. Cool. See you soon. Thanks, Thanks so a lot, much. Simon. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank yeah. you. Bye. 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 Thanks, Bye. Simon. <laughs>